You're listening to the Kilcullen Diary Podcasts. Stories in sound from a village grown bigger. Hello and welcome to Summercast, an occasional podcast from the Kilcullen Diary for this time of the year. I'm Brian Byrne. The story of whiskey is an old Irish one, and the story of Irish whiskey today is one of growth, whether by the solid promotion of traditional brands like Jemison, or the many new craft labels which have sprouted in recent years. Back in the 1800s, it was like that too, and even more so. An estimated 60% of the whisky produced in the world came from Dublin, virtually all of it from a golden triangle in the Liberties. But that declined, and by the 1920s, Scotch whisky was very much in the ascendant. Irish whisky's share of the market fell so much that by 1970, a young Irishman doing his doctorate in Harvard University in the US decided to write one of his required case studies on just that subject. John Teeling knew nothing about whisky. He doesn't drink. It was remarkable. I knew nothing about it. And I was a student in the States. Um, I was doing a doctorate. And part of, the, part of the requirements were that I had to write two case studies. And uh, I hadn't a clue what to do. Like a typical student. I was an old student. I was 25. And um, the professor, one of the professors of, of uh, agribusiness, suggested I do something in Irish whiskey because he liked Irish whiskey, one of the few people in the world who liked Irish whiskey. So I wrote a case study in Irish whiskey, which was the failure to market in the States. It was very unsuccessful. And I was fascinated by this, and I, I, I saw the history of uh, how it had declined from 60% of the world to super percent of scotch. So I wrote a second case study for myself, um, which became the feasibility study, in fact, as to how did this happen. And it was very simple. They just refused to adapt to technology. The new technology of columns. You have no columns here. You only have pots here. The traditional old-fashioned, it's very old-fashioned, very straightforward. And they wouldn't adapt. The Dublin distillers in particular refused to put in the new technology of big columns, big industrial columns, much cheaper, um, much lighter, much faster maturing. Um, but the, the Belfast companies did. So from 1830 to 1900, the Dublin distilleries essentially declined and the Belfast ones came to prominence, which might be happening again and watching with great interest the rapid growth in Belfast distilleries. There's three or four of them now. Having done his research and written those case studies in Boston, John Teeling's interest was further piqued and he came to a conclusion which was to turn out prophetic that he would like to own a distillery. I went to a pub, a strange thing, called the Plough and Stars between Cambridge Square and Harvard Square. Met another Irish guy called William MacArthur. And I said, William, I think I should build a distillery. I said, no, I had an interest. My research interests at that time uh, were in Irish industrial development policy. Still would be, if I had a hobby, it would be in how you promote indigenous enterprise. And that was 1970. I wrote a, a kind of a, a small study to say this is how I would do it and I had no money till 1987. I was married to my current wife and I was broke, you're a student. You don't make much money as an academic but I made a few bob and in 87 bought the assets of the Chemiki Chorva made industrial alcohol, very good quality industrial alcohol in four plants around the country but they'd all kind of fallen into disrepute except the Cooley one which was making good quality portable alcohol 
for um, uh, Smirnoff and things like that for molasses, which he imported through Greenland. So when they closed them all, and I, um, I bought the assets for nothing. £106,000, because they were worthless. Worthless indeed, unless you knew what you wanted to do with them. Of course, to get the whole process going, further investment would be needed. John had made some money on the stock market, which had gone towards the purchase price. But he had other people who had followed him in his stock market ventures, and they came along as shareholders in this new episode. The first production was Easter Sunday, 1989, um, and we put in pots and columns. The, the, the essential requirement was there were columns there to make the industrial alcohol. These big, big, they were stainless steel columns. And um, we, we got pots from the old distillery in, uh, old Cumber distillery in the North Ireland. Set up in 86, production 89, took two and a half years. Um, first profit about, about 2000, and then from 2005 on, it starts to make very good money because of the change in demand. That success was due in part to a significant rise in interest in whiskey and other brown spirits amongst a younger cohort. The Cooley operation developed a number of brands to pick up on that, including Turconnell, Connemara and the long-established iconic Kilbegan labels. John Teeling points out that the age of whisky drinkers in the US today is between 26 and 39, and half of those are women. In Ireland, interest in the native spirit was also developing, and prior to the pandemic there were about 38 working distilleries here, mainly craft operations. But long before that, John Teeling had come to an inevitable conclusion that Cooley didn't have the deep pockets required to successfully market on a global basis, as the multinationals did, which prompted the sale of the operation in 2011 to the giant US-based whisky maker Beam Inc. This sale, which would have left his family very comfortable financially, didn't stop John Teeling's entrepreneurial gallop, though. He subsequently bought the former Harp Brewery in Dundalk and adapted it for distilling bulk Irish whisky. As great northern distillers, it became an enterprise that performed way beyond expectation. Dundalk has, very, has been very successful. We thought we'd have 20 customers. And um, we set out to make about 5 or 6 million litres a year. Now, the plant can make 18 million. It's huge. We now have 200 and something customers. It's the best Irish-owned business because it uses Irish air, Irish water, Irish thyme and some Irish grain. Now, maize is French because it doesn't, their climate just doesn't suit it and it's 95% export. So the value added is huge. It's hugely uh, important for the Irish economy if it can grow and it has grown beyond the expectations. I'm st- also very happy. I would supply even small ones, little tiny ones on the basis acorns can grow. Is it a pain in the ass? Oh! <laughs> it was much trouble. The little ones have to be dragged along by the tongue with their hair. My six biggest customers are all, all big multinationals. Yeah. Then I have a long tail of little tiny ones. We supply people who, who buy like five litres and I make 270,000 litres every week. Uh, and they buy it for cakes, uh, for, for fudges and things like that. Some of them can grow fairly fast. I have some fascinating people. In addition to supplying multinationals like Diageo and Bacardi with spirit, 
Great Northern Distillers provides whiskey to customers in the UK, Eastern Europe, Russia and France, amongst others. In most cases, its own brand, making what's called new fill and selling it to customers at the still, and then warehousing it for them. Much of the product is later shipped by tanker to customers. To those who might suggest that all those customers get the same whiskey, John Teeling points to the fact that G&D have around 400 different blends in progress at any given time. We make about 400 blends. I make five types of whiskey. I make single grain. I make single malt, double, triple. I make pot and I make peated. And then I would warehouse them in different types of casks. And they're distinctly different now, distinctly. After six months, they're different. And so we finish also. So you'd have a whiskey three years old for me, and you say, I want something different. So I might put it into a rum cask for six weeks, six months. And then I give you the ages. Most companies wouldn't do this. Well, I have to stop it, maybe, because it's everybody. There's only so many products we can make. Only because we're trying to control them. So if I have a special cask and it's in one of our 22 warehouses, how the hell do I get it out? Since that low point in 1970, the state of Irish whisky has improved substantially. Annual production now stands at 12 million cases against scotch at 100 million cases. Though the big competition in whisky production is coming from India and Japan, John Teeling is very clear that he believes the potential for Irish whisky is very positive. I think it has huge potential if we don't screw it up. And the danger is we have a thing called GI, Geographical Indicator Technical File. You know, that's our, our trademark, European trademark. And it's very rigid in Irish whisky. Not as rigid as Scotch, but very rigid. And Scotch is so rigid now, it's not growing. Scotch is just not growing. It's, it's uh, because it's making the wrong product. And it's finding it very hard to change. It's not making a product that young people want. Now, if you go for malts, yes. But if an ordinary Scotch blend, old man's drink. Um, we're not, we're a young person's drink. So what do we have to do? To we have to make sure we can innovate the whole time. I, I am beyond a believer in this now. I, I'm absolutely a, a, a missionary, big time, redemptress missionary, um, fighting very hard and getting some support to keep innovation alive. There is another side to the Teeling whiskey story. After the Cooley operation was sold, John's son Jack set up a branded Teeling whiskey business in Dublin on a base of 16,000 casks of aged whiskey negotiated in the sale to Beam. He was later joined by his brother Stephen, and in 2015 they established a new distillery in Newmarket Square, not far from where their ancestor Walter Teeling had operated through the turn of the 19th century. Is there a sense of pride that the Teeling name is back in the Liberties now? I didn't see that. That's Jack and Stephen have, have, be, have a far different approach to me and I think a better approach than me. I didn't think of that. Jack always intended to use the Teeling name. Always intended to be branded only. Um, doesn't sell own label or anything like that. Uh, very different strategy. It was working really well for him up till 15 yeah. months ago. And he, his main sales were duty free. Uh, but duty-free worldwide, uh, he lost a lot in that. They'd be the second biggest selling whiskey in Dublin Airport, and it'll be hard to get that position back again when it comes back. But what I am absolutely pleased with is that they took a concept, which was the renaissance of Irish whiskey. Marketing to the US is very expensive, and to help with that, the Teeling brothers have sold 30% of the business to the US distributor Bacardi. 
Other growing markets include Australia, Kenya and South Africa. My conversation with John Teeling happened quite unexpectedly on the day that I visited the Teeling Distillery in Dublin, which has recently reopened for guided tours. And as it happened, John led off the tour for our small group just because he happened to be there. His own operation in Dundalk might be pumping out 12 million litres of whisky a year, but it's very clear that he's absolutely proud of the premium whisky business which his sons have developed. Irish whisky is in safe hands. I'm Brian Byrne. You've been listening to an episode of Summer Cast. This is Kilcullen Diary and Slodja.